We are back here with you on the punch out this Monday, March 8th, 2021, International Women's Day, of course, a day to acknowledge the contributions of and gains won by women in the struggle for liberation around the world. So happy International Women's Day to everyone out there. And as we start the week off, we're going to be talking about the Pentagon's new plans for war with China, the stimulus and its relationship to the poverty wage economy, and the deepening conflict in Yemen. But before we get to any of those stories, we're going to start with Brazil, where there are some major breaks in presidential politics. Well, in a major decision today, the Supreme Court, or well, one of the members of the Supreme Court who was reviewing the case of former President Lula Ignacio da Silva, the cases, I should say, that he was convicted of that have kept him in prison or kept him in prison for 500 days, kept him out of the 2018 presidential election. All of those convictions, all of those cases have been dropped. There were two criminal actions allegedly for corruption and money laundering involving what that was alleged to be a part of this broader scheme of corruption. There was something called the car wash investigation led by someone named Sergio Moro, who had pursued Lula. This was after the legal coup, really. It was really a coup, although it was an impeachment, but it conducted a coup conducted through legal means to remove Lula's successor, Dilma Rousseff, from the presidency there in Brazil. Lula then became caught up in this, was accused of this corruption, of this money laundering and was then put through all these different trials. Now, for some time, it's been very clear that it was a very dubious case. And the issue that was at particular or the big issue here, and this is what was ruled on today, was whether or not the court even had the jurisdiction to go after him. And that was why all the cases today were invalidated. They said that the court did not have the jurisdiction to pursue him on these issues. So in fact, the case could be reheard in another court uh, in Brasilia. It's unclear if that's going to actually take place. There will have to be an appeal for that to take place, but it could still take place. But the important element of this is since the charges have been dropped, Lula is eligible to run for president next year. He is the only candidate right now that seems to be able to rise the Brazilian president, current Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro. A poll just came out very recently, actually, I believe it was on Saturday, it may have been just before, of the presidential race there in Brazil. Lula was ahead of Bolsonaro by about 13 percentage points. He also had the lowest, basically, disapproval rating uh, of, of any of the candidates that were put up for potentiality, the potentiality of, of maybe becoming president. So this allows the political cycle to renew here and the possibility of Lula being able to enter the race, potentially win, and not only defeat Jair Bolsonaro, but really to defeat the entire project that was developed by the elites in Brazil as represented by Moro, as represented by many others in, in the course of the 
investigation that went on, which was to use this lawfare, this legal imprimatur in order to bring down the Workers' Party government of Brazil, which was putting in place policies that, well, there's a mixed record there. There's a lot we could say, but that nevertheless emphasize the rights of, of people in a, in, in a major way, poor people, the working class people, the peasantry was willing to look at land reform, was improving access to health care in the, in the poorest communities. That was providing basic income to many of the poorest people that was expanding education in many different ways, both through the traditional system and also supporting things like schools that were sponsored by groups like the Landless Workers Movement that were bringing, you know, people who couldn't even read and allowing them to, to get college educations, to bring them that far educationally, supporting really these many things that were very transformative and certainly against the interest of the elites of Brazil who want to keep all the wealth for themselves and certainly out of the hands of the majority of poor and working people that are the base of the Workers' Party air in Brazil, which was really the prime vessel for overthrowing the dictatorship in the 80s and bringing democracy into the uh, into being, really, in the, the last 40 or so years in Brazil. So major, major decision here. Uh, again, there's some possibility that it could be revisited as it concerns some of these lower courts, but that certainly is unclear. There's no date for set for, no date set for that. It's not clear if it'll even happen because there would have to be a appeal. At least that's what I'm reading here. There'd have to be an appeal for that to happen. But nevertheless, as of right now, the former president, Lula Ignacio da Silva, is eligible to run for president again in Brazil next year. He is the leading candidate in the polls. This would be a major return, a major defeat, really. And we know now that the car wash investigation was also, you know, very closely linked to the U.S. Justice Department was also involved. And so this would be a major defeat if just, just this case being dropped. And just the fact that Lula can run is a major defeat for the agenda of the United States and the right wing in Latin America that wanted to extinguish these progressive governments, the so-called pink tide of which Lula's government in Brazil was uh, indicative of and which was really maybe the centerpiece government of the move to the left that we saw in parts of the 2000s. So uh, major decision there in Brazil. We will certainly see what is next, but it certainly seems that the stage as of now is set for a showdown between former President Lula and current President Jair Bolsonaro in next year's Brazilian presidential elections. <laughs> Well, over the weekend, Saudi Arabia launched brutal air assaults on the Yemeni capital of Sana'a, hitting at least five different neighborhoods, causing, as they normally do, collateral damage, including the death of at least two children. There are also airstrikes launched on the port city of Hodaida. That's the last port where aid can enter into the country. And there's an international agreement that they, a Stockholm agreement, it's called, that the Saudis are not supposed to bomb the Hodaida port area. Nevertheless, they did over the weekend. And this is par for the course for the Saudis, whose invasion of Yemen has created what has been widely recognized as the world's worst humanitarian disaster. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and their allies in the United Arab Emirates, with the help of the U.S. and the U.K., have conducted a massive bombing campaign that has deliberately targeted schools, hospitals, civilian neighborhoods, and even farmland. The Saudis also maintain a tight blockade to keep the flow of aid to a trickle. So you put all those things together, no surprise, it's the worst humanitarian disaster in the world today. 16 million people, or roughly half the country, 16 million people, or roughly half the country, suffer from hunger. And that's a rough estimate. Could be more. There was a report from 
just last week that noted that 400,000 children under five are at the risk of dying from malnutrition. 400,000 children at the risk of dying from malnutrition this year. Children under five. Yemen is also suffering from mass outbreaks of cholera and dengue fever. So even if you can find enough food to eat, you can easily die in one of these disease outbreaks. And again, due to the various Saudi blockades and the Western sanctions that have been placed on the Houthi government, allegedly for their ties to Iran, medical supplies are not getting in in the way they need to get in. And remember again, the port of Odaida being bombed by Saudi Arabia. That's where this aid's coming in. And in fact, over the weekend, patients with kidney issues protested in the capital of Sana'a, demanding an end to the blockade and the sanctions, calling attention to the fact that all 15 dialysis centers in Yemen, all 15 dialysis centers in Yemen are subject to close very soon due to lack of supplies, which of course will kill these people. 70% of the country live in Houthi-held areas, and it's important to remember why this war started. Now, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and UAE did not like it that the Houthis were able to form a government, that they were popular. The Houthis have some limited ties to Iran, obviously a big enemy of those two countries. And they also have some friction with the Saudis because they refuse to just be a total vassal state of Saudi Arabia. And that's what the kingdom expects of any government in Yemen. So... Saudi Arabia, UAE, they invade the country and they've began a brutal occupation, mainly of the southern parts of the country. They haven't been able to hold that much ground. They've played on regional tensions between the north and the south to deepen the conflict, pitting Yemenis against Yemenis. But they also have allowed al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula to grow significantly because the Houthis were the main force of people fighting al-Qaeda. Now, the Houthis allege more direct co uh, cooperation between the kingdom and al-Qaeda than uh, most in the international community are willing to say, but nevertheless, at least indirectly, the actions of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the UAE, abetted by the US and the UK, have caused the growth of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. The Houthi support amongst the population is clear enough, and it's quite clear when you see that this total inability of the Saudis to dislodge them from the core territories they hold, where again, 70% of the population live. They've been trying to completely starve out and destroy these people, yet they continue to back this Houthi movement, which despite being in a limited area and an already poor and small country, they are putting up a stiff resistance to the Saudi war efforts. Also over the weekend, the Houthis themselves launched a drone attack on one of the largest oil facilities in Saudi Arabia. And these attacks sent the cost of oil soaring. And as Bill Farron Price, who's a director at the research company Inveris, told the Financial Times, quote, the frequency of these attacks is rising. We know the capacity to cause serious damage exists, end quote. The Houthi forces are also closing in now to evicting Saudis from the city of Marib. This has been going on for the past several uh, weeks now. It's sort of in the north central part of the country, one of the last footholds of the Saudi puppet forces there. But uh, there's also big oil reserves there. The Houthis, it looks like, are about to push them out of Marib, seizing even more territory, showing that they are indeed the true government of Yemen and have the majority of support there. And certainly the majority of military arms in terms of the ability to actually win. The U.S., however, just by claiming that they wanted to end offensive operations in Yemen is been at great pains over the weekend to say how much they stood with Saudi Arabia against the Houthis, said they would keep funding Saudi Arabia, although they said it was just to defend Saudi Arabia itself. But you can see the hypocrisy of the White House. They don't want the blood on their hands of actively assisting these brutal Saudi bombing campaigns and their occupation tactics, but they're going to continue to arm them and to continue to support them and to continue to try to isolate the Houthis uh, under the guise of putting pressure on 
on Iran. So in order to keep this alliance together between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to dominate the region and make sure Iran has no real influence in the region, the United States is willing to let 400,000 children starve to death in Yemen. 400,000 children starve to death in Yemen. That's what they're willing to do. This is Joe Biden's White House. Well, there's a lot that could be said about the stimulus or the relief package that Congress is shepherding through here now. And we will say quite a bit. We are, in fact, this week going to do a deeper dive on the bill in our weekly Big Listen midweek patrons-only version of the Punch-Out! podcast. So if you want my full analysis on the bill, look for it there. Again, Wednesday, patrons only. So you can go to patreon.com slash breakthrough news, become a patron. You'll be able to get our midweek big listen, patrons only punch out where we're going to be going deeper into this stimulus bill. So here today, I really just want to focus on one big element of how we conceive of the whole thing. That yes, this is a relief bill, but it's relief only. The main red lines around this bill were not doing anything to really change the pre-pandemic status quo. Now, as a relief package, there is certainly good and bad. And again, we will get into that Wednesday on our patrons-only version of the Punch-Out. But let's focus on the two most controversial issues to highlight the point above. The $15 an hour minimum wage and the extension of unemployment insurance. Now, Joe Manchin just exposes the whole game here on the unemployment issue. He told Newsweek during the negotiations around the bill that he wanted to limit the enhanced payments to $300 because, quote, It doesn't incentivize people. It'd be awful for the doors to open up and there's no one working. In other words, to go above $300 wouldn't incentivize people. And again, as he said, it'd be awful for the doors to open up and there's no one working. So again, keeping the payment at $300 is explicitly designed to make sure it doesn't compete with low-wage work. Note Manchin's comments about places, quote-unquote, opening up. We know last month, the majority of new jobs were in the leisure and hospitality industry that is opening up to a greater degree as states recklessly roll back public health mandates. So again, that $300 is about calibrating unemployment insurance to not compete with the low-wage economy, which makes the $15 an hour issue even more clear. I mean, here's a situation where you have a majority of people in the country, even more than that, in polling done in the nation's 67 most competitive congressional districts, the so-called swing districts. 62% of those polled, including 59% in districts won by Republicans, favored raising the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. 62% overall, 59% in districts won by Republicans in the 67 most competitive swing districts in the country. They all want $15 an hour. So a majority in the country wants $15 an hour minimum wage. But somehow in Congress, a so-called representative body that you think would be reflective of the majority in the country if it was democracy. But no, in Congress, there is a majority for poverty wages. Well, who were they listening to? Well, the only real opposition to the wage hike came from business lobbies like the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, and the National Restaurant Association. Similar to Manchin on unemployment, the Business Roundtable, and that's one of the biggest corporate lobbies in the country, by the way, cited the fact that it would, quote, undermine the recovery. The National Restaurant Association just openly told the press they didn't want a $15 an hour minimum wage because it would eat into their profit margins or those of their members. So again, despite there being a majority in the country 
for higher wages. Congress went with poverty wages. So yes, as relief goes, there are some things we can point to. But again, the trade-off, the red lines, essentially for a relief package, were that it not fundamentally changed the deeply flawed system that has had the mask ripped off of it by the COVID-19 pandemic. And that red line wasn't set by you or by me or by the majority of people in this country, but by the corporate lobbies that love low wages. Last Thursday at the arch-conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., the American Enterprise Institute, Admiral Philip Davidson, the commander of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, presented that command's new six-year plan to, quote, focus resources on vital military capabilities to deter China, end quote. And the centerpiece of that plan, as the Nikkei Asian Review lays out, is, quote, establishing a network of, preci- uh, establishing a network of precision strike missiles along the so-called First Island Chain as part of a $27.4 billion investment. Now, the First Island Chain consists of a group of islands including Taiwan, Okinawa, and the Philippines. And may also end up including parts of mainland Japan. So the plan, in a nutshell, is to spend nearly $30 billion to surround China with a ton of very powerful missiles. Why? Well, they say, the Pentagon, that is, quote, without a valid and convincing conventional deterrent, China is emboldened to take action in the region and globally to supplant U.S. interest, end quote. And what are those interests? Well, as it's been said before, McDonald's doesn't work without McDonnell Douglas. It's that control of the world that gives U.S. corporations the most intense access and control over economic and financial flows everywhere else in the world, the preeminent position the number one superpower. Whereas the U.S. national defense strategy puts it, the central challenge to U.S. prosperity and security is the reemergence of long-term strategic competition. And they mention China and Russia and go on to say that that's bad because it would displace the United States from quote-unquote global preeminence in the future. So in other words, to remain the world's only superpower, to preserve, quote-unquote, prosperity. This is why they're doing it. But we can see for whom in the United States prosperity is really reserved. So the real summary of it all remains to remain the world's predominant superpower so that the richest people can remain the richest people. And how are they going to do it? Surround China with missiles and threaten them with annihilation. Now, as I mentioned, this is a six-year plan. Still has to be approved, the funding and all of that. And not just here in the United States, but in the host countries. And that could be difficult at best. It's obviously a problem for them because it makes them a target. Uh, the first people that they're going to be attacked if there are these U.S. missiles there in a U.S. war, Philippines, Okinawa, Taiwan, mainland Japan, maybe even South Korea, all these places will be the immediate first target, which means that irregardless of anything those countries do, any U.S.-China conflict would drag down almost all of East Asia into a fiery sea of destruction almost right away. Now, if that sounds bad to you, now might be the time to start saying something. Not in six years. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. 
It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.